This is a Ward Scott Files advisory. The Ward Scott Files podcast may contain material not suited for people who are easily offended. Trust us on this. This show contains adult information and opinions. Please protect small children, sensitive pets, fragile houseplants, and liberal relatives. Thank you. He's going to come up the steps. Here he comes. Oh my goodness, and he's huge. Hello, boy. I wonder if we can pat him. Hi, boy. Can we touch him? No, don't. Help me! Help! Help! Good morning, good morning. Professor Ward Scott here in the Warthog Man Cave, the manly man cave in the command center of the Melton Law Studio, 352-325-3938. For our hotline, of course, we watch the Facebook chat and we broadcast uh, simultaneously on YouTube. And of course, you'll be able to hear us throughout the day at Spotify, at Apple Podcasts, and also on wardscottfiles.com, where we archive all of our shows. And we have a wonderful guest today. We have a topic that's really, is just increasingly become more significant in the lives of not only this country, but probably the world, because as we go, so goes the world in so many ways. Uh, we've got some unprecedented dialogue going on here, if you want to call it dialogue among the top power people of this culture. And we feel we have a very timely guest today and professor of politics at New York University, Lawrence Mead, who has written an op-ed piece for the Washington Examiner, which is a most timely. I just wanna hit a few uh, highlights of it before we introduce him. Um, we have been talking for quite a while in the Ward Scott Files about the uh, elitist autocratic world that runs a democracy that prevents it from being really a true democracy, a popular type of uh, bottom-up deal, where it's more like a top-down deal. We're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about, of course, the um, uh, less responsive government that we have today, that this disconnect we seem to have. Some people call it alternative universes, uh, where there is the DC universe, and then there's the rest of us out here in the hinterland. And we have to remember that we are not the only kid on the block, that we don't represent the majority of humanity, about 15% of humanity, according to Professor Mead's calculations. And uh, that plays into a lot of discussions about what is on the agenda and what is on the minds of the power elite in cahoots with their um, associates, if you will, and that's the popular media and, of course, big corporations. So we've got a lot to talk about today. Um, Timely, too, is the fact that there's this discussion from Schumer about uh, rigging the rules of the Senate to, uh, you know, bring ultimately, I guess, any kind of dissent to its knees. So um, we'll be listening to uh, Professor Mead, whom I'm going to begin to call a Larry from here on out as we talk with each other. And uh, this is just a really informal discussion between us. Uh, he has his own podcast show, which we'll talk about, and um, you may see it over on YouTube. And it's all about the culture discussions that he has and the guests he has of, uh, uh, to, to talk about these issues so important to us. Welcome to the show, uh, Larry. It's great to have you. And yeah, uh, my pleasure. And uh, I think we've got so much to talk about. And I'm just going to uh, run with you for a while and let you take us where whatever is on your mind. I know from the time you wrote the piece, which is apparently in the beginning of the month of December in 2021, we've had almost a month go by just about exactly a month since the piece appeared, I think, December 5th. And uh, now we're here we are on January 7th. Uh, what's changed in that month since you wrote this piece, if anything, Larry? Well, I think the, uh, the polarization of the two parties is more intense now than it was previously. Uh, part of that is due to the reflections currently about the January 6th event at the Capitol, where there was an unprecedented assault on the institution and how to interpret that is now the, the main issue between the parties. They have different views about what happened that day and whether it's important. Um, I personally don't think it's all that significant. I don't think we're uh, on the edge of a civil war as some commentators have suggested. I don't think it's anywhere near that serious, uh, but there are deep divisions between the parties and those are very much about the issues that you've already alluded to well, you know, it certainly cast the elections in a different light coming up in 2022. Yes. And um, let's yeah. talk about that, for example, what you think might be um, some of the um, 
What yeah. portends for that from yeah. your vantage point? Uh, I think the, the leading election, uh, leading election issue next fall probably will be immigration. I think that's the place where the Biden administration is most out of step with the public. Uh, it's obvious that the public is upset by the extent of immigration, by the fact that the border is effectively open uh, and that we don't really have control of the people coming into the country. And as I argue in this and other, other works, uh, it's important to limit immigration because we don't want to have the country turn into a third world country in which we don't have the culture that we have today. Uh, the United States is an individualist nation and much of its success derives from that. And although there's value in immigration, uh, we don't want to have it become so large that in fact it's, the United States is no longer an individualist culture. That would be a big mistake and it would be a cost for the entire world, it seems to me. So I think that shall be the biggest issue and it should be. Well, it probably will be an issue, would it not, that the Republicans would have to bring up because I doubt the Democrats will want to talk about it. Uh, that's right. Uh, they would uh, just as soon not mention this. And um, I mean, they're dealing with a long-term problem. It's not all of their creation, but they're, what they're not doing is continuing the restrictions that uh, President Trump put in effect, which were very important, it seems to me, very desirable. But it was tough for Trump to uh, to obtain control of the border because the legal rules are not are not supportive. Their legal rules really allow for an open border currently, and so they have to be changed. And we ought to. And I think Republican candidates ought to run on that. Well, to some extent, we've tried to do that through DeSantis here in the state of Florida, Larry. Uh, and DeSantis is really the uh, black sheep in the herd right now, as far as the Democrats are concerned. And, and uh, every day there's kind of a smear campaign on him now and, uh, that rivals perhaps even that, which, well, it won't, hasn't risen yet to the level of a smear campaign on Trump, if you will. But uh, Governor DeSantis has put his foot down about this. We're not going to accept these people. Uh, we have uh, limitations to what we can accommodate. Yeah. Uh, and uh, that is it going to be left to the states along the border to do this? Because it doesn't look like the federal government has got no. the um, courage or whatever to do it. I, I think that's right. And, and there's going to be a legal test about that. Uh, certain states have said it's now our responsibility to try to control the border because Washington is not doing so. Traditionally, this has been a federal issue. But if, in fact, the federal government abdicates and that's what's effectively happened, uh, then you'll see states taking control, and then they'll be challenged, I'm sure, by federal authorities, and there'll be uh, a determination. But I think we're, we're likely to see uh, state control, and that is indeed better than nothing. Well, it certainly affects them right uh, away because it's their terra firma that is being uh, walked on and oh. across. And, yes. Uh, <laughs> it's very difficult. You know, I think this gives birth to some of the notion that uh, Washington is disconnected, particularly when you yeah. give the assignment to the vice president and she doesn't even get near the place. Yeah, uh, <laughs> that's true. Uh, on the other hand, she was given an impossible job. I mean, there's no way in which she had authority or leverage to control the border currently. Uh, so, I mean, that was a losing opposition right away. Uh, and nor was there any way in which she could persuade the countries to the south of us to exert restraints. And for them, it's, it's very useful to have a, a safety valve, to have a, a place where their own people can go uh, to get jobs and then send money home to the home country. Uh, that's uh, uh, an advantage to them, but it's not an advantage to us. We have enough low-skilled labor now, and well, we should be, should, do, should be doing much more. It's getting our own people employed in those jobs. Well, some would say that it's been done deliberately by the Biden administration to me inept in this cause because it helps them with their political base down yeah. to even the poorest uh, kinds of voting regulations that we haven't yet discussed, which I know we will. Uh, the two different uh, uh, narratives, if you, uh, if you will, about elections. One, if you try to make it accountable, you're suppressing the vote. Uh, and two, if you're trying to make it accountable, you're uh, validating the vote. Yeah. So how will that work itself out, Larry? Well, I, I don't think there's much issue about that. I think uh, Americans expect the vote will be open and people have an, a right to vote if they're legal residents of the country. And that's certainly uncontested. I don't think there's any dispute about that. I think there is some uh, dispute about some forms of voting. I think there's a reason to be concerned about the very rapid growth of 
uh, mail ballots and other forms of voting where the voters are not actually at the voting site. I think that could lead to problems. I don't say they occurred last in the last election. I think that I don't see evidence for that. But there is a risk there, and there is therefore some basis for attempting to tighten that up. But that's a minor detail. That isn't really going to change the vote very much at all. Uh, it's pretty clear that that doesn't really affect the vote. What's going to affect it is how people react to what the Biden administration is doing. And I think on this front, they are definitely uh, at fault. Not that the problem started with them. I think it goes further back. But they have not maintained the controls that they could have done. Don't look Professor of Politics, Lawrence Mead, but we're chatting as Larry here on mm -hmm. the Ward Scott Files. If you uh, have a call, 352-325-3938, and we'll translate that call into a message. And you can chat with me here on Facebook chat, which I'm watching as we speak. Right now, Larry has predicted that the big issue will be immigration yeah. in the 2022 uh, congressional battle. Um, and you might be right on that. In, in, but is the press going to give it any coverage, Larry? Uh, I think they will if the candidates make an issue of it. I think then they'll, they'll pretty well have to. I don't think that the press, uh, certainly the press is predominantly liberal on this question. There's no question about that. And they would, from their point of view, would rather not have the issue raised. But I don't see how they can avoid it. This is obviously something where the administration is, has lost control and where they're culpable. Uh, but again, I don't, I don't claim it's the problem is all they're doing. It's, it goes back. We really haven't had control for some time. And there's no way that's not, not going to be mentioned on the, on, at election time, and it should be. What do you make in, uh, of the uh, uh, positions? And, and I, I know you're out there writing and publishing and observing. I observe that the Wall Street Journal has come around to being a little more conservative on some of these issues. Yes. Larry, then they began at the beginning of the Trump administration. They are exonerating him a, a little bit more and beginning yep. to see this in a different perspective. Do I yep. got that right? Uh, I think it's the, the, the Wall Street Journal, I find to be a moderately objective journal. It isn't really slanted. The one that is slanted is the New York Times. The New York Times is very definitely committed to liberal positions on virtually all the issues. And a lot of their coverage is focused on grievances by groups represented chiefly by Democrats. Blacks, women, other minorities get a lot of attention in the Times, uh, and uh, their grievances are pretty much accepted by the paper. And much of their reporting isn't really about political events, it's rather investigative reporting by the paper into what they regard as scandals and mistakes by government. And, and that they sometimes have a case. I think there's uh, much that comes out that's good, but the paper is very one-sided. There's no longer now an objective uh, assessment of the political situation. So you really have to take what the Times says for a grain of salt. And in particular, I think the Times is chiefly responsible for maintaining a state of panic about the, uh, the COVID problem. The fact that we still have a virus running around the country is treated by the Times as an emergency. And that leads to much greater controls over uh, the, the citizenry than are really necessary, it seems to me. So the Times is out of step with the country, uh, but their influence is such that they have a lot of sway on, on how many people see the issues. You know, uh, along that line, we've got a question that came in about the exoneration, if you will, uh, or the reluctance to prosecute the former governor. These would be particularly uh, the... Uh, the, um, the senior citizens' homes and the COVID numbers and all that. Yeah. You're there in New York. How, how, yeah. do, you, how do you see that, sir? Uh, I, I'm not sure. I'm, I'm ambivalent about that. I don't, I don't know enough about it, about the nursing home issue, to be sure. I do think that the uh, claims of, of sexual abuse that the governor has faced are mostly trivial. I don't think the governor, in fact, committed huge offenses here. And his opponents have used those events as a, as a basis for throwing him out of office. I think that was excessive. Uh, he's actually been a fairly good governor. I think he's held, after all, he's had three terms and that is unusual. Uh, he was a more moderate Democrat than many others in the state. The, the danger in New York is always that Democrats will get such control that they'll just give away the store and just have essential huge benefits for various claimant groups and also for the public unions. Uh, that is the great threat to New York's future, is that the government would just become unaffordable. 
and, 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 and actually Cuomo took some steps in the right direction. He's been a pretty good governor, I think. And these focuses on his personal mistakes are, um, I think, overdrawn. What about your New York mayor change? How do you read that, sir? Uh, I think that is a sign that Democrats have, have gone too far to the left. Uh, Eric Adams is a moderate on many issues and especially on crime. Uh, he has a credible background, having been in the police world for some time. He ran a good campaign. Uh, he uh, stands up for ordinary New Yorkers, and he's not so much in, in the grip of the elites that tend to dominate the Democratic Party. So I, I'm optimistic about Adams. I think he's going to be quite an effective mayor. But he currently faces a number of serious problems. There's the COVID problem. There's also crime levels, which have been much higher than in the recent past. There's the homeless. Um, he's got a lot on his plate, and I, I just wish him well. I hope he's going to be a success. Well, you know, Jason Riley seems to agree that um, that's the, that I believe this is the second black mayor, right? Yes. New York, Dinkins first. Yes. How did he do? Well, uh, Mayor Dinkins was uh, in a difficult situation. He took office in the early 90s when the crime levels were much higher than now, where they had not come down as much, which happened really under Giuliani after uh, Dinkins. And uh, Dinkins struggled with a number of issues, housing, crime. Uh, he wasn't very decisive. He didn't show that he was in command. Uh, and the contrast was clear when Giuliani took over and then Bloomberg, they were much more effective as managers. Uh, and indeed, they they governed the country for long, for the city for a long time. And Giuliani had two terms. Bloomberg had three terms. Uh, and th th that is what put New York really back on the rails. That that dealt seriously with some of New York's serious problems. And, and the city became uh, growing and prosperous in a way it had not been for a long time. And then de Blasio has moved back to the left. He's been a very conventional liberal, not very successful, but in the eyes of most uh, and now we have a moderate who's, I would say, kind of in the middle. Adams is really not very liberal, um, at least the judge on his campaign. And he's got a strong background. And so I'm, I, again, I'm hopefully he's going to be effective. Talking to Professor Lawrence Mead, Larry, for our interview. And he's in New York right now. I assume he's a professor of politics at New York University and uh, has written um, a lot of, uh, has written a book, which we'll talk about also that we might want to bring up next. Yeah, uh, Larry. Um, and has also published an article which we're alluding to, which really is our springboard for our conversation today uh, about uh, the the world's culture. Uh, which would you like to take? I'm so well, curious. Uh, first, uh, I'm cur curious, wh whichever one. The, the book. Okay, let me mention a bit about the book, uh, Burdens of Freedom, and then we'll go on to the World Culture War. Essentially, what, what Burdens of Freedom is about is the cultural division within the world between the individual's culture, most characteristic of the United States, and a more moderate, more cautious culture that you find in the rest of the world. Americans uh, tend to think that uh, their love for freedom and for individual pursuits uh, is characteristic of humanity in general. And that isn't true. Uh, we have to recognize that the individualist culture is found really only in the Western world. And as you've already mentioned, the Western world represents maybe 15% of humanity. Most people in most parts of the world are really not that interested in freedom. They're much more interested in security and predictability. Uh, and as a result, they, don't, they generally have a worse condition of life than we've had in the West. But the American way of life depends upon a tolerance for freedom, both economic and political. Uh, and that is not something that's universal, uh, quite the contrary. Uh, so we have to recognize that freedom is not a universal value. And the United States is not a universal country. It depends very much on a culture of individual pursuits and also a moralistic attitude towards right and wrong. These features came from Europe uh, with these uh, immigrants who settled uh, the United States. But then we have other groups in the country uh, who come from the non-Western world, Blacks, Native Americans, Hispanics, Asians. These groups actually represent quite a different view of life. They don't think of it in terms of individual pursuits so much as adjustment to outside pressures. And their notions of right and wrong are much more situational, much more based on context. Uh, what's right is what other people expect you to do. Uh, whereas in the West, the attitude is more what's right and wrong is determined by principles that we learn very early in life, things like the Ten Commandments. We tend to view them as absolutes and we apply them to ourselves and to other people and to government. 
And so although it's an individualist culture, it's one in which we have strong moral attitudes about what's right and wrong. And that explains why we have an effective government, a government that is strong as well as accountable. That is only possible when you have the strong civic values that are a part of the individualist culture. And, and we don't understand how difficult and how rare that is. So when we try to export freedom outside the United States, we generally do badly because the culture isn't there to support it. That's what happened in Afghanistan and Iraq. These countries were uh, far away from the culture that it takes to have a democratic society. So we can't assume that everyone's like us. And one of our major problems is going to know how to deal with countries that are falling apart uh, outside the U.S., outside the West, uh, so that they don't generate simply waves of immigrants uh, to the West. The main threat, in fact, of the non-Western world today uh, is, in fact, runaway immigration as people seek to escape uh, collapsing countries uh, in Central America, in Africa, in Asia. Uh, these countries represent a threat to us, not primarily because there's going to be terrorism, but because we're going to have millions of people seeking to escape their home countries in order to find uh, what is really good government in the West and in the United States and also in Europe. Uh, that is the main threat. Uh, and we have to find a way to deal with that. And I don't know that I have definite recommendations. But one thing we shouldn't do, we've already mentioned, is have runaway immigration ourselves. We should not allow uh, unlimited numbers of people from the non-West to come to the United States because they come with a different point of view, a different idea about what life's about than is traditional in America. And my book is all about that. It's really about the contrast between the West and the non-West. I wonder if you touch on the point, I've read the article, I haven't read the book, but I'm going to, but uh, this is one of the things that's concerning uh, to me, um, that when these people come from these different cultures, we try to, and I'm going to use a term, it's probably not very um, uh, sophisticated, but we water down our culture to accommodate theirs. Yeah. And uh, we, we, we try to meet them on their terms rather yeah. than have them meet us on ours. Yes. And, and, you know, I talked yesterday or a couple of days ago on the show, Larry, about um, France and how France is fiercely protective of its language yeah. uh, because of its language goes, so goes its country. Yeah. And, you know, we're not protective of any of our values, it seems, that are yeah. so ironically the things that these people are coming here to enjoy. Yes. Uh, I, you've hit on a, a key problem in Western culture, actually, is that the moralism of the culture about right and wrong produces strong self-criticism. And it's possible for our leaders who are strongly individualist themselves to believe that their own values require that they capitulate in the face of other cultures in order that they be shown as tolerant and accepting. But they go too far and they're not ready to defend their own values. Uh, and the idea that, that uh, our own beliefs require that we kowtow to the, uh, the prejudices of others uh, is something that goes way, way too far. We have to be willing to defend our own, uh, our own beliefs uh, because they are the basis for what has made America a rich and powerful country. We cannot give up the individualist culture. And we are to a certain extent advocating now, lest we be seen as intolerant, as racist, whatever, whatever. That is a big mistake because, as you just as you say, they're coming for the fruits of freedom in America. But then they have to adjust to the demands of freedom, which are actually quite severe and tougher than what they faced in the old country in some ways. So we must insist on assimilation. We can't have them remain in a non-Western way of life while they're in America. That, that isn't going to work. They're going to have to learn the American way of life, which involves its own demands. Uh, and that extends also to minorities who have been here a long time. I'm thinking especially the long-term poor people who are Black, Hispanic, Native American. These groups have, are in serious trouble. And their basic reason, the reason for that is that they have not accepted the burdens of freedom. They're still living in the way people do in the non-Western world, living from day to day, engaging in survival rather than pursuing personal goals. And that, that is the great problem. And we have to be really ready to uh, insist upon movement towards an individualist culture. Well, we're talking with Professor Lawrence Mead, Larry, to us during our conversations. Uh, and he's at the New York University. And of course, I've had a long life in, as a professor in the college system, as an English professor, a rhetorical uh, 
strategies and that sort of thing and classical studies, Larry. So um, much of this that we're talking about, we can converse quite uh, readily on how do we find the leadership in our culture and the politicians to, yeah. and we had this discussion yesterday, Larry Monk, uh, I was invited to a group of very, very intelligent, frustrated people in our community. Uh -huh. um, they were tired. They're, they're, they, you know, they're very well educated. Some are physicians um, and they're frustrated at what they see and what you and I are talking about doesn't get said by the politicians no. and, the, and the absence of leadership. How do we deal with that? If you agree with that? Yeah, sir. I do agree with that. But I, I wouldn't say that all politicians are, are silent on these issues. I, I think in general, conservatives are more ready to confront the assimilation problem, whereas Democrats are generally more reluctant because they see minority groups as part of their voting coalition. And they do indeed vote more often for Democrats than for Republicans. But in so doing, they, they fail to serve their own group's long-term interests, which is to come to terms with America. They have to be willing to accept that there are certain responsibilities they have as members of a free country. It means not only obeying the law and avoiding problems with the authorities. I mean, that's pretty obvious. But in addition, they have to have personal goals that they pursue. I mean, the really heavy burdens of freedom are actually those that come from the goals that we ourselves choose. Uh, as important for our lives. And it's the pursuit of those goals that really orients what we try to achieve. And I mean, the, the life that you live, that I live, are, is the life of an overcommitted achiever. We're basically trying to do things that are difficult, require long-term effort. And, and, and those, it's those demands that really organize our lives in a constructive way. And when the bulk of the society views life in those terms, the whole society becomes dynamic and, and all the time pressing for improvement on many fronts. That is what it has made America uh, what it is today. It, it's not an easy life. There's a lot of instability. There's constant change. There's controversy. Uh, these are difficult things for many people, particularly those who come from the more static societies in the non-West. When they come to America, they are uh, greeted with turmoil and it looks like chaos. It isn't actually because we also have strong government. We have the rule of law. And this is, in fact, the ability to combine freedom with uh, uh, order is the really remarkable achievement about the Western world. We don't really conscious, we don't understand that, we don't focus on it, but that's what we have achieved. Whereas in much of the non-Western world, you have to choose between freedom and order. You really can't have both. And in general, what we see today is autocrats govern many countries overseas because they do provide order and the public is more interested in that than in freedom. And in general, that's what they prefer, okay? That may be what they have to have, okay? But what we shouldn't do is expect those countries to become fully democratic in the way that we, we have in the United States because that would be uh, to assume a culture that they just don't have. Uh, they're deferring to authority. They defer to authority in general. They don't hold the authorities accountable in the way that we do, but the authorities are also weak and they're not really able to govern their own societies. That's the best that they can do, given the culture they have. And we shouldn't exert a lot of pressure on them to be more like us. That's not going to work. Uh, and we have our own problems, as everyone mentions. But we're certainly struggling a bit uh, to agree about key issues in this country. But I'm confident that we will. And we've done it before. And, and that is it's tolerance for those confusions that are part of the democratic society. We have to accept that. Uh, and, and I think we're going to make some progress over the next year or two. Talk with um, Larry Mead, Dr. Lawrence Mead, here of New York University, professor of politics. And uh, we're going to have to take a, just a small sponsor break here in a moment, Larry. We've got a lot of questions piling up here about um, how the dangers are to our society about people being willing to let the government take charge of their lives. Yeah. Um, that seems to be a trend uh, that is on the lips of a lot of people, sometimes yeah. known as socialism and some yeah. terms call it even communism. So yeah. uh, uh, we'll be back. If you can hang with us, we'll have about a 90 second break. Uh, you and I'll be able to okay. chat live, but uh, uh, we'll go uh, in, in production. Let's take us on our sponsor break. Thank our sponsors. And we're talking with uh, Professor Lawrence Mead, Larry here, all the questions you want to have, you may reach me 
on the Melton Law Hotline at 352-325-3938 or on the Facebook chat as we are live right now. We'll be back in just a moment on the Ward Scott Files. This is Ward Scott, and I want to thank all our sponsors who keep the show going and pay the bills. The Ward Scott Files premium sponsors are Crime Prevention Security Systems, large enough to serve you, small enough to care. The Ward Scott Files gold sponsors are On the Spot Dry Cleaners, Okita America Martial Arts, R&R Construction, Gators Dockside, and Style Cuts. If you are interested in promoting your business on the show, you can visit our website, www.awardscottfiles.com, and click on the Advertise Here banner on the right side of the page or call my friend Freddie at 352-284-3733. Again, thank you to all the great businesses that support the Ward Scott Files. And remember, if you like the show, thank our sponsors and support the businesses that support us. Out Warthog. He's going to come up the steps. Here he comes. Oh my goodness, and he's huge. Hello, boy. I wonder if we can pet him. Hi, boy. Can we touch him? No, don't. Help me. Help. Help. Welcome back after our break to the uh, Ward Scott Files. Professor Ward Scott here in the Warthog Man Cave, the Manly Command Center, 352-325-3938 of the Melon Law Studio, our big sponsor. And we thank all of our sponsors and our donors because you can donate to the show as well. And we keep putting the notes in the bottle here on our island and putting them in the water and hoping they float out and someone sees them, reads them and picks them up because uh, we keep it coming and we try to offer some sort of uh, alternative perhaps to what you may see in the popular press. And today we have a great guest with us who is uh, very active uh, in investigating a lot of the topics that we talk about on the show. And during the break, he and I were talking about bringing up this next subject, and that is whether we are trending towards socialism in this country, particularly among the young. And um, Larry had a very interesting take on that, which I'm going to uh, be quiet about and let him talk about. So, all right. Uh, the, the idea that there's socialism is a throwback to the kind of issues that we had up until, I would say, the last 20 years. Uh, then the major question was whether a governmental economy run by the state can outproduce a free economy. And it was very clear uh, over some time that that wasn't going to work. And in fact, the free economy is vastly superior in terms of generating wealth and opportunity for the bulk of the society. So socialism was effectively defeated and communism was defeated. And it's a mistake to see the government we have now as socialist. It, it doesn't really involve the detailed control of the economy. That isn't primarily the danger. The danger rather is the, the costly benefit programs that we've enacted in the past and which have turned out to be vastly more expensive than we ever imagined. I'm thinking Medicaid, Medicare, Social Security, also the, the, the recent attempts by the Biden administration to bring in even bigger benefits uh, for poor families, for uh, preschool education, for, for child care. We already have a, a quite a large subsidy. So the, the, the cost is the danger isn't really over control. It's rather excessive demands uh, on the economy coming from government. And the, the result is that there could be a financial crisis. We're rolling out national debts on the order of a trillion dollars a year, something like that. Uh, and we can't go on like that. Uh, at some point, the financial markets are going to rebel and refuse to buy government bonds, and then we won't be able to finance the deficit. So that is the real danger here, is uh, over, over demands uh, on the economy and through government benefits. And these benefits are popular. They're not going just to the poor. In fact, they mostly go to the middle class, including retired people. Uh, and uh, they're very popular, and it's hard to question these benefits, but we just can't afford it. So this is, to me, a major issue, and it really has very little to do with socialism in the traditional sense. Well, I think you brought up an excellent point. You have a very good perspective on this, and I suppose we can put this under the category of entitlements. Yes. And what yes. I've been able to learn about entitlements, Larry, is once you have them, they don't go away. In fact, uh, they become bigger. 
Well, that actually isn't true all the time. There are a few cases of entitlements that have been uh, canceled later, done away with because they weren't popular and, or they weren't effective. And in fact, right now, the major entitlement that the Biden administration favored was a new benefit for poor families that would have essentially been a kind of guaranteed income that uh, a single mother uh, with low income could get $300 to $350 a month for every child uh, just to be sure that she'd have enough to live on. Now, that amounts to a, a repeal of the major welfare reform of the 90s, when, where we required that cash benefits going to families should be based on a work test where the, the mother had to go out and get a job or prepare for a job in some way. Uh, and she wasn't just going to be giving, going to get money just for being low income. Well, that was abolished by the Biden administration and Congress. Uh, and they, in fact, in the current year, that benefit is in effect. And we, and, and at least for the current year, right up until October, uh, there is guaranteed income, uh, something we never had before. But because that, that idea has been questioned in Congress, it's not going to continue after the current year. At least it doesn't look that way. And the public is not in favor of this because it doesn't involve any work expectation. Most Americans think we should have to do something in return, return for what you get. The, the, the idea isn't that we don't care about poor people, but we want to see some effort on their part. And when we see that, we're ready to be quite generous. So the Americans are not against helping the poor, but they are very much in favor of uh, uh, reciprocal obligations where you do something and it's because you're making an effort on your own behalf that we're ready to help you. And that's one of the paradoxes of our culture is that we are more ready to help people that are working and otherwise getting ahead than we are to people who are not doing those things. Uh, now, in some cases, they're going to be disabled. They have reasons why they can't make the effort. We understand that. But in general, uh, the major problem of poverty is that people are not employed when they could be. Uh, and uh, Americans expect that they make that effort. But that's unpopular on the left. The left believes that people who aren't working have faced problems that are really not of their own making, and they shouldn't have to do anything to get income, to get a basic income. They also misunderstand what's happened in Europe. The, the common view is that the Europeans are ready to be more generous to give people guaranteed income regardless of work. Actually, that isn't true. They've moved in the direction that we have of expecting work. And what we're now trying to do is prevent a go, going back to guaranteed income of the sort that the Biden administration has favored. That would be a big mistake. It would take us back to the problems that we had before welfare reform. Uh, and we need to avoid that. But at the same time, we need to help people making an effort. Uh, so again, the idea here isn't that we, should, we shouldn't help people, but we do expect reciprocity, that there has to be some effort on their part. Well, we have a question that's come in, and it's uh, probably from a, um, a skeptic or maybe even a cynic, and I don't blame him for being on this page. Why would Biden do that? I mean, yeah. where is the wisdom in all this stuff? Yeah. I mean, Well, he, he, this idea didn't come from him. It came from liberals in Congress, including many poverty experts, many of whom I know personally. I've been a leading expert on poverty and welfare for a long time, and I know all the other experts. And in general, they're more to the left. They believe in giving people more benefits, and they think that that's good for children. And you can show that just giving a family income does produce benefits down the line for the children. It definitely is true. I'm not disputing that. But what pro produces even more benefit is to combine the mother's working with benefits that are conditioned on work. It's the combination of working and, and other supports that does the most for the family and most for children. So that's what the Biden people have given up. And again, it isn't really Biden that initiated this, but rather Congress. Uh, Congress has moved well to the left, and this policy is, is, is popular among most de Democrats and also among the academic world. So uh, frankly, they made a mistake here, and they're going to have to go back to what we did in welfare reform, which was trying to combine support with employment. We have to get back to that, and I think we probably will. Well, meritocracy is a word that comes to mind that has become out of favor. Yeah. Uh, perhaps it describes what we're discussing right now that um, I know in being in the classroom, uh, you work hard and you get. And I always told the students, I didn't give you the grade. I awarded you the grade you earned. And um, I gave you opportunities to change it with your own behavior. 
yeah. it wasn't a top-down evaluation. Yeah, and, uh, correct. <laughs> but well, it, I don't know if that's still live and well in education right, and out of right. regard from it. The, the, that, in principle, is not really questioned in the university. What, what we have to worry about is not so much that, but the need, what you find in the university instead is a set of preferences for certain groups that are seen as more disadvantaged so that they get uh, admitted to uh, selective colleges uh, more readily than other groups that don't have that same identity as disadvantaged. And there's a certain value to that. Um, I don't mean that I'm totally opposed to affirmative action, but um, it can go too far. And, and that, in fact, is the case in some of the most elite colleges They've gone over to such an extent of focusing on the disadvantage that actually traditional groups that usually have the most talented students, I'm thinking particularly of people from European backgrounds uh, and uh, also Asians, these groups do the best in school and they expect to have, the, uh, to have that rewarded by getting into these top colleges. It's now tougher for them because of the focus on the disadvantaged students. That the colleges are going over to social engineering, really, rather than running a meritocracy. And I think that's quite controversial. They've gone too far and they need to, to cut that back. In fact, meritocracy is actually quite an unpopular idea in much of the world because it does mean that the most capable people who often have other advantages, too, end up profiting from their abilities in ways that can seem unfair to other people. That's true. But it's, it, it, we found out historically that you really can't tolerate a society in which people get a job or position because of who they are and not what they've achieved. So meritocracy is, is difficult. There's no question about it. I mean, my family's just gone through uh, getting our kids into college, and that is a stressful problem. No question about it. Both of our kids have had struggles in doing that, and they come out very well, and we're very pleased. But it's not easy. It's not for the faint of heart. The United States in general, that's characteristic of individualist societies, are competitive. And competition is one of the things, one of the burdens of freedom. You have to be willing to tolerate that and get out there and do your best. And then remember also, society doesn't just support the winners. Society honors everybody who makes an effort, even those who don't come out competitively well. Uh, they also are honored and respected. And in fact, the, the social programs that I was questioning just a moment ago are set up on that basis. Now, the social security system treats every worker the same in terms of how they are treated. Now, what they get from social security is a function to a large extent of their previous earnings. So people who were successful and had high incomes also get higher benefits from social security, but they're not treated differently. The system is set up to honor all workers and gives them the same treatment uh, by the bureaucracy. We do very much believe in that. And, and I think that's a sign of an individual's culture where although there's competition, there's also respect for those who make an effort. Let's talk a moment since uh, we're really covering everything under the sun, which you're so capable of doing. And this is what this show is about is having a chat with people of your stature about anything that uh, our listeners and pretty much want to talk about. One of the things that we hear is a revision of uh, how shall we say this? Um, the medical world. Yeah. Um, and and um, we have a problem in that we've covered this. We've had medical doctors on the show who are trying to find a way to deal with maintaining a rapport with their patients that is not, um, how shall I say this, governed by a non-physician group that manages them. Yeah. Um, have you studied that or have you got a opinion? Uh I think you're referring to the fact that the medical world has been invaded by fears of disadvantaged groups that they're not being treated equally or not getting the same attention from, from the medical world uh, and that we should have better benefits for them. I think that that is sometimes true, but not generally true. Uh, the main problem in American medicine is not that people aren't getting care, but that the care is unusually expensive compared to other countries. And, and that's because of primarily because it's inefficiently organized. We have several different health systems. We have the Medicare system, we have Medicaid concentrating on the low income. We also have a separate system for the military. Uh, and then we have a, a number of different pension systems. So it's the complexity of all that that leads to much of the expense. But another factor is that um, 
there are some aspects of American uh, life that are really not very attentive to health. And in particular, many people are overweight and they tend to become subject to diabetes and other problems due to being overweight. Um, that's just an example of uh, a health problem that could be minimized if people lived in a different way. So many Americans assume that they're entitled to uh, the, the doctor's attention to save them from problems that came from the way they were themselves living. In fact, it's come out recently, uh, many of the uh, people who are currently in the hospital due to the COVID uh, epidemic are people who weren't vaccinated, who simply didn't take the steps to protect themselves against the virus. And then they expect the hospitals to save them. Well, I have a problem with that. I think they should do the thing that is sensible, which is to get vaccinated. And in so doing, they also serve a public interest and they should be concerned about that. Uh, and then, yes, the doctors should take over and help them if they're still sick. But we should, we, we should be prepared to be critical of people who don't take ordinary steps to preserve their health, because that involves much of the expense that we have now in the health system. You know, well stated. We've got an excellent example of this dilemma right now in the sports world, the tennis world of uh, Novak Djokovic, yeah. who is actually locked up right now, if you will, in a holding a hotel. It's really an immigration center. It's yeah. not all that splendid. And um, he's marching to his own drummer, um, which I can see his, his, his ration personal. He went into hyperbot chambers and um, different diets and rose to the number one. And yeah. um, it was remarkable. But now he's got this thing in his head that it, whether it's a conoclastic or, uh, you know, based on yeah. he doesn't have to have the and Australia just said, no, you're just not coming in. Yeah. And, um, you know, I don't know what it's been, the world is watching. <laughs> well, what you see there actually is something that's, I think, quite central to Western culture. We do tolerate individualism in the sense we allow there to be competition and somebody like Djokovic can get to the top of very competitive sport by his own excellence, no question about it. But at the same time, we have the rule of law. And, and a country like Australia, which like the U.S., is created really by British political culture, they have a strong view of the rule of law. And, and you're not allowed to, to break the rules when they've been rationally justified and passed by parliament and, and they serve a public interest. Uh, I think Djokovic is getting what had coming to him. And the same is true for uh, equivalent situations in the U.S. Uh, it's a little more complicated in the U.S. because we don't have a national policy. The restrictions that may be due to COVID are really at the state level. Uh, it's not primarily a matter where the federal government has control. So that leads to compl complexity and unexpected demands, which many people oppose. But the principle is, in fact, the same. They're, when laws are well justified to serve a public interest, and they certainly are in the COVID case, uh, then they should be honored. And, and it doesn't matter how successful you are, uh, you have to honor that rule. Uh, and uh, that is something that's very important in our culture. And that's what you typically don't find in the non-Western world. You have much more corruption. Uh, the rule of law is not consistently applied. People who are, are influential and, 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 and affluent can often get away with uh, various things that they couldn't get, a, get, a, get away from in the U.S. And they don't really have the rule of law. And that's one of the things they immigrate for, trying to find a country where they can expect the rule of law. Well, but when you do that, you then have to abut, you have to honor that. You have to be willing to bear the burdens of freedom. One of them, and one of them is to obey the rules when they are legitimately exercised. Talking with Doc, uh, Professor Lawrence Mead of New York University and politics is really his specialty. And politics is a very big subject. It encompasses practically anything. It has um, people involved with governance. So it's a broad subject. And you may contact me at 352-325-3938 or uh, comment here on the Facebook chat. You know, we have a situation that may or may not come to be, and that is, speaking of rules, a change in the rules for the filibuster in the Senate. Yeah. What do you make of that? Um, I'm ambivalent. Uh, I see the argument against the filibuster because it does allow for a minority to dominate an issue when the bulk of the public is against that position. That does occur. But we have to remember that the Senate, from the moment of its creation in the Constitution, was set up 
on a non-majoritarian basis. It was not really ever designed to be a place for simply the majority rules because every state has two senators, regardless whether they're a large state or, or a small state. There's a, a bias in favor of the smaller states to make sure they don't forget them, that they're not forgotten about. And if it were not for that, uh, the, the whole government would be like the House of Representatives, where basically the big states dominate because they have most of the representatives. Uh, in the Senate, every state's on the same basis. Uh, and, and then the filibuster is to make sure that you don't have enactments going through that are represented by uh, a majority, but where the minority is really deeply divisive and doesn't want to have what's going through. Uh, that's what happens in the House, but doesn't happen in the Senate. I personally think that's a good idea, but I think there, there are extremes where it can seem to frustrate the popular will. And that's, of course, what Democrats feel is going on right now. Um, but the fundamental problem, I think, for Democrats, the reason they can't get what they want from Congress, because they didn't really have a majority. They have only 50 seats in the Senate, and they have to have a few more than that before you can really claim that you control the Senate. And they don't have that now, so they shouldn't expect to dominate the Senate. Uh, and in the House, they have a very small majority, and, and that is the fundamental reason that Democrats are having not, they can't get everything they want, is simply because they don't actually have a mandate. Uh, the president won his office by a small margin. It's clear that he won. I don't believe those who say that the election was stolen. That's ridiculous. Uh, on the other hand, uh, it does mean that the left can't have their day in the sun as they wanted to. They really can't have everything they want. And uh, the moderates are simply too powerful. So they're going to have to win the next election. And in fact, the odds are they won't win it. The odds are we're going to go back to the right. And uh, the, the Democrats will likely lose their majority in the House and maybe in the Senate. Uh, and frankly, uh, they have overreached. They've tried to do more than they could really do, and they have to accept that. Well, you know, speaking of that, um, the question popped up right away, and you mentioned the election, and that's about private money influencing the election. Yeah. This past time, there's no question but what that happened. It was yeah. Zuckerberg money for the Center for Civic Life, something of that little yeah. order. Uh, yep. Just in our just in our supervisor election, just in our county, Zuckerberg put in seven hundred thousand uh, yeah. dollars, Larry, and no one here knew it. Yeah. Um, and there was no accountability for how the money was spent to any degree. And most of it was spent to uh, proliferate absentee ballots, uh, yep. which were very difficult to validate. Yeah. Um, do you agree that? Or have you thought of, I'm going to put you in the spot, but uh, you're, you're kind of the scholar in residence on this, that we need to close this loophole of private money being able to influence public elections? I, you know, I don't see evidence for that. There's been um, a widespread belief that corporate money and other outside money affects outcomes, but actually political science has not been able to show that. It's very hard to say, to show that the uh, outcome of an election is in, in, very, in any important respect determined by contributions to the candidates. And also after the election, it's been very hard to show that those who lobby members of Congress get what they want from Congress. Typically what happens is they give money, they give money to people who already agree with them and they would be voting according to what they want even without the money. So it isn't clear that uh, money actually has much influence over outcomes. Uh, I know it looks very bad. I agree with that. And one can argue for some degree of regulation. The case you mentioned, obviously, is a state case. I mean, the issues here are primarily state because states, unless overridden by Congress, states have control of the election rules. That's what's at issue now in the current bills in Congress to, in fact, regulate elections. Congress is allowed to do that. But Republicans, and I, I, I support this myself, I think that the state's should be allowed to con control elections unless there's a manifest abuse. And I don't see that right now. Now, there are some proposals that Republicans are pushing that would make it harder uh, to, to vote. But uh, according to what I've read in the papers, that actually isn't effective. That actually people who vote, want to vote, go ahead and find a way to vote. And, and the restrictions that the Republicans are talking about make almost no difference to the vote. So I think it's a mistake to imagine that there's a real threat here. I do see a potential threat in the absentee ballots. I think because those have grown so enormously, uh, they do pose a risk that there will be an attempt to manufacture votes that aren't real. 
Now, I don't think that happened in 2020. I don't see evidence for that. But there is a danger there. And, it's, and, and I think it would be worthwhile to regulate that kind of voting a little more closely. Well, we have uh, reviewed some uh, issues about uh, that are relevant to what you're speaking here. There are other countries that, quote unquote, have democracies, quote unquote, that vote. Yeah. And from our research, and correct me if we're wrong, most of them are much more rigorous about the voter being accounted for as who the voter is. I mean, there's photo yeah. IDs or even in some countries, there are thumbprints. Do you yeah. think that we, I always kind of made lightly of this. I say in this country, you can vote if you can make a fog on a mirror. Um, <laughs> no, I, I, I don't, again, that, it looks like it could occur, but I don't see any evidence of that. There really isn't evidence that people who aren't citizens are in some way getting to vote. That, now there are proposals, New York, for example, the city council wants to allow uh, immigrants who are not citizens to have a vote in certain elections. Now, I'm against that, but that's above board, it's legal. Uh, that's something that uh, one can dispute. But the idea that people are, are voting who aren't allowed to vote, I don't see evidence for that. that. That isn't true. In fact, the remarkable thing is how proper elections are. And even in the last election where Republicans were a lot of, under a lot of pressure to support President Trump, uh, the fact is uh, they obeyed their constitutional oath. They were proper and they didn't, they didn't allow any, any queering of the vote. Uh, even though there was great pressure on them. Uh, I thought that was terrific. That showed the deep uh, commitment Americans have to the rule of law, left and right. And I don't see uh, any way to think that that's in danger now. So I think it's time to be a little less alarmist about that. Uh, and I don't mean that what the Republicans are doing shouldn't be subject to challenge. A lot of those proposals are going to end up in the courts, and the courts will have the final say. But the courts and the influence of the courts on questions like this is one of the main illustrations of the rule of law. I mean, the great fact is, in America, the judges are not for sale. They, they really cannot be bought. And instances of corruption involving judges are very few. And that's true at the local level as well as the federal level. So we should honor the judges and the, and the legal system we have. We may dispute the laws specific and say we should have a different law. But Americans uniformly except the rule of law. And that is a great, great strength. Well, we have a comment here, and then I want to have a backup story for you that you may be surprised to hear. Of course, we have a viewer who says absence of proof is not proof of absence. Um, you know, talking about evidence, let me just give you an honest, a true example. In the state of Florida, uh, a felon cannot vote until he's paid restitution. Okay? On our own research team, we have a, a research team who works for the Ward Scott Files, we discovered that there were 30 convicted felons in the Alachua County Jail who registered and were registered by an agent of the supervisor of elections, which was illegal, allegedly, let's put it that way, and voted, okay? Now, we found it. The supervisor of elections didn't find it. The supervisor of elections didn't look. You know, nobody looked, but we looked just out of kind of curiosity. You know, do we have anybody breaking the law? We were alarmed, amazed. Yes, we do. We looked. And then we alerted other supervisor elections elsewhere in the state of Florida. And guess what? Yes, <laughs> there are violations. Why didn't you look? You know? <laughs> well, you, what, you, what you've illustrated is one of the great facts about America, and that is free press. See, you, you were free to carry out that investigation. Nobody stopped you. You were not threatened by the law in any way by doing that. Uh, if you would publish something inaccurate, you might be might face a lawsuit. That might happen. But uh, no, I mean, government screws up. And, and But what you very seldom find is deliberate attempts to queer the vote. That is extremely unlikely. And, and I don't think we should, we shouldn't believe the stories until there's hard evidence. And I don't see that here. Uh, in, I, I rather like the fact that elections are local and they're presided over. You know, when you go to the voting booth, I mean, this, this is true in New York where I live now, also before that in Washington, D.C., um, the, the people who preside over, over the elections are these dignified older ladies, mostly, who come from <laughs> local community organizations, and they volunteer their time. 
and they are presiding over the election. And the idea that somebody should try to get in there and vote who doesn't have a right to vote, it's unthinkable. You would have to offend these very dignified older ladies who are representatives of civic virtue. You know, I just think that's great. And the, the voting event is a great sacrament of self of popular of popular government. And however the election comes out, it is a celebration of the civic values that are that are very, very strong in the US. And we need to keep it that way. Well, you know, it's been a great talking to you. We're out of time, unfortunately. I want to thank you for coming yeah. on the Ward Scott Files and and uh, having this chat with us. Uh, we will, of course, uh, be posting this. And uh, it's uh, at wardscottfiles.com in case you want to link to it. And um, we invite you to do that. And we've been talking with Professor Lawrence Mead, New York University, but we have been referring to our friend and our guest today is Larry. And he's been very engaging and very willing to answer any and all of your questions. So uh, we appreciate it. Have a great weekend and um, stay. I, I don't know if it's snowing and all that up there, but we've got good weather here, Larry. <laughs> <laughs> we've got a bit of snow here, but it's only a few inches and that's not very much. Okay, Lord, a real pleasure. Good Thank to, you for uh, coming good on. Good to talk to you and uh, we'll see you again soon, I hope. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye-bye. Wardell Command Center out.